Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. We'll yeah. start uh, uh, with a prayer, but before that, just a, a, my own little housekeeping. Most of you know I'm primarily using this book by uh, Cardinal Jean uh, Danelieu, um, who um, is it, it's, not a, it's not a real thick book, as you can see. It's very readable. Uh, the Angels and Their Mission. This is the main source book for what we're dealing with. Uh, I will, as I said to Andy earlier, be send out some of the notes I'm using tonight. I didn't want you to be distracted with paper and, you know, let's just talk, let's listen, let's have a conversation. But we'll, I'll send this out to him tomorrow um, and um, we'll get it out to you, okay? Okay, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we, um, we, we come before you with a, with a, a humility that we're studying something very mysterious um, that you speak to us of and assure us of the existence of the angelic world and of angels, but um, we know so very little. But uh, nevertheless, um, we have, um, guided by your Holy Spirit uh, through the fathers of the church and others, have reflected on the glory and the beauty and the mission of the angels. And uh, we've, we've been able to find uh, hidden jewels in the scriptures. So please help us, Lord, to be attentive but above all, to be joyful and respectful of a great, great angelic world hid from our eyes and yet very, very real in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. All right. Now, as we begin, I want to remind you, this is actually uh, lecture two of a four-part series. The first one was done uh, at um, Our Lady of Sorrows here in Virginia. Uh, and if you haven't seen that, you know, consider that that's kind of part one. And some of the some of the background to the angels, I'm going to skip over that because I did do it in that first talk. Um, but um, we'll, we'll, we'll cover at least a few essentials as we get started. Uh, I only have a very few slides I want to show you. It gets a little awkward sometimes going back and forth. But why don't we just bring up that first uh, slide, Andy, and we'll go through those slides uh, and then we'll get into the topic here. Now, this is just my little title page there, but you see Christ Ascending. We're going to particularly talk today about the angelic choirs and their role or their presence at the Ascension. Uh, so go on to the next slide, uh, Andy. I just, this will be a kind of out, uh, a, uh, an outline of, we're, we're going to look at the Ascension, and I want to look at uh, three aspects from the book. The parabolic, by which I mean parables, uh, some, some par a parabolic prelude, a picture and a processional of the Ascension, and then the praises of the angels as Christ goes up. So that'll be the first part. And we'll take a, a look at a second aspect of the angel's mission, um, which is uh, not as fully developed in this book, um, but it's, uh, if you go to the next slide, Andy, it'll be the angelic choirs and the church. So we'll start out actually in paradise and how the, uh, the fallen angels, in this case, particularly Satan, uh, made a mess of things. Um, and, uh, but nevertheless, um, the angels themselves, how they rejoice then in the church, then as, as the body of Christ and the bride of Christ and their role in the wedding feast of the Lamb. All right, now just a final review slide. Let's look at the choirs of angels on this one. And just to remind you that we have here nine choirs of angels. Now, choir doesn't mean necessarily that they're singing choirs, 
but they're more like uh, ranks. If you think more like of ranks than, than, than choirs necessarily singing. Now, the supreme hierarchy, the middle hierarchy, and the lower hierarchy, right? So the supreme hierarchy ministers in the third heavens. I, I told you in my lecture that uh, when we were at Saint, uh, in, in, back in Advent at the St. Mary of Sorrows, that um, there are the, the, the Jewish people regarded in generally three heavens. The highest heavens, or the third heavens, is where God lives. The, um, the second heavens is where the stars, the planets, and so on are. And the first heavens is the, the sky, uh, the clouds, the, where the birds fly, and so on. So those would be the three heavens. And to some degree, these angelic choirs broken into three minister in these different heavens. So the highest or supreme hierarchy of the seraphim, cherubim, and thrones, they minister uh, in the highest heavens. Right there in the throne room of God are the seraphim and the cherubim and the thrones. They minister to God himself in the very highest heavens. Now, there is a middle hierarchy wherein God governs all things in the universe through, his, uh, through these angels the dominations, uh, the virtues, and the powers. We have then the lower hierarchy, which is uh, principalities, archangels, and angels. And they minister here on earth and over the earth. There are, there are angels that are set over nations. We have guardian angels over individuals. We have archangels that, if you will, govern the other angels and their different work. And, and, and so we see all of these um, different ranks, if you will, of angels, all right? Now, we'll talk about this a little bit as we get into it. It's commonly believed today that Satan was fell from the highest ranks of the angels um, among the seraphim or maybe the cherubim. That's one theory. And another theory is, no, he was um, in the lower hierarchy, probably an archangel, who got, an, a terrestrial angel, if you will, governing the earth. And uh, therefore, he fell from that rank. So St. Thomas says, we don't know. You know, we don't know. Uh, he gives two different theories. He favors that Satan fell from the highest ranks, but um, he also brooks the idea, as some of the church fathers say, that Satan would have fallen from among the lower hierarchy, namely probably one of the archangels. So anyway, um, it's, it's okay to say sometimes, I don't know. And uh, so Thomas favors one position, but doesn't want to exclude the other. Okay, I think that's enough for the slides. What we want to do, though, as I say, is talk today about then the ascension first and foremost. And I want to give you a parabolic prelude. Now, if you do have your Bibles, as you all should, if you don't have one, go sell all you have and buy one. But um, I would say that um, if you want to open to Luke 15, I want to read you a couple of parables that we often don't associate with the angels, but the church fathers did. And remember, this is a study of the mission of the angels according to the church fathers. What we're studying is not necessarily dogma, although there are some dogmatic things, for example, the existence of angels, but there are also a lot of just opinions, theories, but they have a venerable quality because the fathers articulated them. So with that in mind, if you have your Bibles open to Luke 15, there are these two very strange parables. Um, the first one is, and we know them both very well, the parable of the lost sheep, and the second one is the parable of the lost coin. So it says here, now Jesus told them this parable. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the, in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. 
And he comes home and he calls together his friends and neighbors and says to them, rejoice with me for I found my lost sheep. In the same way, I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous who have no need of repentance. Now, this is kind of a head scratcher because on earth, I'm going to tell you right now, if a shepherd has 100 sheep and one of them wanders off, he's going to cut his losses. He's not leaving the 99 in the wilderness. He's not going to do it. And he's, he's not going to go in search of that one unless it's just maybe over the next hill. You get the idea. You're not going to leave 99 sheep in the wilderness unpastured, unattended. Uh, while you go in search of one, you just cut your losses. So it's a strange parable in a certain sense. Now, the fathers of the church explain this parable is that the 99 sheep are the angels. And the lost, the one lost sheep is us. And so God, if you will, Jesus leaves the 99 in heaven, so to speak, or among their duties. And he goes in search of the one lost sheep. That's us. And then when he finds it, he calls his friends together, namely the angels, and says, rejoice with me. And then contextually, you'll notice there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than, among, than, than over um, 99 who had no need to repent. So again, the, the fathers explained this for many of them, not all of them, but many of them explained this parable as an image of Christ descending to go in search of the lost sheep. And then ascending again with that sheep on his shoulders and saying to the angels, now rejoice with me. I have found the lost sheep. And so we'll see how this parable relates both to the ascension and to the angels and their mission in the church. Now, the other parables is like it, right? Uh, from about verse 8 there in Luke 15, it says, or what woman having 10 silver coins and loses one of them does not light a lamp and sweep her house and search diligently until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors to say, rejoice with me, for I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. So here, too, again, the fathers, this is a puzzling parable, too, at a human level, right? You lose one coin, a denarii, maybe a day's wage. It's not nothing, but it's maybe it's like a $50 bill, okay? But, but it's, it's, so it's not nothing, but on the other hand, it's not like, you know, so then she has a party that probably costs more than 50 bucks to celebrate finding it. You know, it, it's, a, it's a weird parable at a human level. And um, one of the explanations that the fathers say is that this, again, is an image of the Jesus, if you will, calling out to the angels saying, look, I found the lost coin. I found the coin I've lost. And the angels rejoice with him. All right. So what we, the, the, the fathers apply this. Now, I'm going to read to you from uh, Dan Lu's book here, uh, just to show, and you'll, I hope you'll sort of see why these parables are used in a minute as the course unfolds. But if you have Dan Lu's book, I'm at the top of page 49. And he says here, there's a whole tradition with Irenaeus as his first witness, but actually going back much further, which sees the lost sheep as, the, as human nature, and the flock which God shepherds and uh, but leaves behind as the world of the angels. Origen sets it forth frequently. Methodius of Philippi writes, we must see in the 99 sheep a representation of the powers and principalities and dominions uh, whom the head and shepherd has left behind to go down and seek out the one lost sheep, namely us, right? And Cyril of Jerusalem says, the angels are numerous. They are 99 sheep whereas humanity is only one sheep. So it tells us the myriads of angels it must be. Huh? Uh, we, mankind, are the lost sheep. We who by our sins have strayed from the hundred spiritual creatures. 
Okay, so again, uh, we, uh, we see that the fathers assign a kind of a tradition. So, it, it, just to link it to the first talk in this series that we gave back in December, Jesus leaves the 99, he leaves heaven, he descends, and some of the angels go down with him, as I showed you there. And they, they announce to the lower-ranking angels, they go, lift up the gates, let in the king of glory. Who is this king of glory? He, the Lord, he is the Lord of, he is the Lord of glory. Um, and so they, Jesus comes down. Why does he come down? He comes down in search of the lost sheep, in search of the lost coin. He comes down, and then he finding it and putting that sheep on his shoulders, he goes back. He ascends into heaven with that sheep and says to the highest ranking angel, rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep. So it's a beautiful image of both the descent and the ascension, isn't it? Yeah, a beautiful image here uh, of Christ carrying that lost sheep on his shoulders, returning, and the angels having joy in heaven over the one sheep, namely us, who was lost but is now found. And so that's a kind of a, a parabolic prelude that I want to give you, and we'll refer back to it, but keep that picture in mind, the, both the descent and the ascension of Christ, and the joy, the joy of the angels. Now, what you'll find in these, uh, as we move through this uh, lecture tonight, is that there are many quotes that you and I would never think to apply to the angels, but the fathers, again, are very creative in their imagination and seeing these, so many of these beautiful scriptures as related to, and, um, applying to both the ascension and to other aspects of the angelic life. And you'll see that as we go on. So I want to move now from those kind of parables. Let's just sort of put them in the, in the back of your mind and keep them in your imagination. Now let's take a look at the, the picture and the processional of the ascension. John 150. Remember, Nathaniel was, was said, uh, we have found the Messiah. And, and uh, he's Jesus from Nazareth. And Nathaniel said, can anything good come from Nazareth? You know? And of course, they say to him, come and see. And eventually, Jesus sees Nathaniel, says, I saw you under the fig tree. And, uh, and wow, you're, you know, and he really reacts strongly. And finally, Jesus says to him, and I'm, I'm at uh, John chapter 1 and verse 50. And uh, Jesus says to Nathaniel, do you believe just because I told, I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. Indeed, then he, he declared, truly, truly, I tell you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So Jesus is already hinting that at his ascension, that the angels of God will come down from the highest heavens, and the lower-ranking angels will, will, will ascend with him, and the lower-ranking angels will descend and minister to him. So you have this, this remarkable picture already at the very beginning of his public ministry, the calling of disciples. He's saying, you're going to see that I will ascend one day with angels descending and ascending. And so, again, uh, do you think of the ascension in this? Well, the fathers did, see? And um, be like the fathers. <laughs> see these things for what they are. Uh, but you see, again, the role of the angels, right? It isn't that, you know, we want to avoid this idea of just Jesus kind of stepping on a cloud and kind of in a lonely way, going up, going up there, and they go, ooh, ah. But he goes up there all alone. He does not go alone. He goes, first of all, accompanied by uh, the, the many angels who sing and shout his praises, as we'll see unfold here in the notes ahead. Also, when we look a little bit at the aspect of the church, I want to argue with you that these uh, Jesus not only does not ascend alone because the angels are there, but because he leads with him a host of captives in a triumphal procession into heaven. 
and that'll be the body of Christ going into heaven. All right, now, so there's our first glimpse at the ascension and the role of the angels. Now, why do they both ascend and descend? All right, well, you may remember in my first talk that it is, it is held by most of the fathers that it would be unbecoming, only in a, let's put it in, let's look at my air quotes here, okay? It would be unbecoming for the lower ranking angels to minister to the one who was ministered to by the cherubim, seraphim, and thrones. So most of the fathers of the church held that the several times in the Bible that we see that angels would come and minister to Jesus, that these would have been higher ranking angels like the cherubim, seraphim, and thrones who administered to him in the great throne room of heaven uh, because this is, he is God and he is ministered to by them. So some angels then descend. Other angels that would also, though, at the ascension, would lead Christ up from the earth, the, uh, the lower-ranking angels, the, uh, the, the principalities, the angels, and the archangels would lead Christ up while other angels descended to meet him uh, in the air, so to speak, or in the cosmos as he ascended higher and higher. So there's a beautiful picture of the ascension of, as Christ ascends of, of both descending angels and also ascending angels. And that's what the fathers see in this picture from John 1 and verse 50. Now, John, um, Chrysostom says that the angels are rejoicing, but they're also astonished, astonished. Uh, this is the behavior, this ascending and descending, this frantic movement and joyful moving of, with Christ, that this is, this is, no, is, is a kind of an ecstatic quality, uh, an astonishment, if you will, uh, the behavior of those who want to see the unheard of spectacle of man entering into the very heavens, God's heavens, uh, the astonishing spectacle. You see, again, um, no human being had ever gone to heaven. Even Adam and Eve were not in heaven. They were in an earthly paradise, you see. The, the astonishing spectacle gives joy to the angels as they see such humble, such a humble thing as, as human nature ascending to where it could not ever go. But in Christ, now united to his divine nature, man returns to God. The human person is not simply restored to an earthly paradise, but is exalted to a heavenly one. Oh, the great, great beauty of our God. Oh, happy fault. Oh, necessary sin of Adam that merited for us so great a redeemer that we were not simply restored by God, but actually exalted by him. So again, these are, uh, this is the astonishment of the angels. And Christendom sees the ascending and descending qualities as a kind of an ecstatic movement or a dance of joy, okay? You know, we hardly think of these things, do we? You know, do you really meditate much on what the ascension was like, you know? Some of you were with me in the catechism course, and I had some fun with you in that section when we, I, I tried to give you some, some ascension ideas. But again, just, just note the joy, the imagination, the zeal of the Father's thinking on these texts. Now, it says here, Eusebius and also Chrysostom, as well as Justin and Athanasius say that the virtues of heaven, seeing him rise, seeing him begin to rise, surround him in the form of an escort, proclaiming his ascension as they cry, rise up, eternal gates, that the king of glory will enter. And herein then comes this wonderful dialogue between the angels. Now, again, if you were with me in my first section of this talk, you, you we talked about this, that is Christ comes down from heaven 
and descends into the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the highest ranking angels go with him and they announce to the middle range of angels um, the, um, the, uh, uh, the fact that this lift up the gates and let in the King of glory. And the angels cry out, who is the King of glory? He, he, the Lord, he is the King of glory. Uh, and so as he descends, this, this great cry goes up, open up the gates. Uh, this, the one who comes is God, is Lord himself. And then finally to the lowest ranking angels that when Jesus was born, the, that the, the song, the glory to God in the highest was sung by the highest angels signaling the lower ranking angels. This is he who is to come. This is he who has been announced. He, he is now the eternal son of God now has been born. And the, uh, the glory to God in the highest is, if you will, not just a lovely song of praise for man to hear, but for the lower ranking angels to hear. So that was the descent. Now notice then in the ascent, now the lower ranking angels go up with Christ and they come into the middle range of angels and up to the highest angels in the highest heavens. And it says here, Psalm 24 is applied by the fathers of the church. So as the angels go up with Christ and each succeeding rank of angels and finally into the very heavens itself, they cry out, lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may enter. But then the higher ranking angels ask the lower ranking angels, who is the king of glory? And they answer him, the Lord, the strong one, the mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Oh, lift up your heads, O you gates. Oh, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may enter. And so they cry out as the, as the gates of heaven come up then to receive Christ, who is both God and man. And uh, this is the, the great time. By the way, that you probably, I may have mentioned, but if you don't know, that is Psalm 24, verse 7 and following that I'm quoting. Now also, um, there's a quote from Isaiah that's beautiful, and the fathers of the church also apply it to this dialogue uh, to the angels. So again, some of the angels ask as Christ ascends, Oh, they said, who is this coming from Edom, from Bosra, with crimson stained garments? Who is this robed in splendor, marching in the greatness of his strength? And in, it goes on to say um, that the angels, then re, uh, the, the angels then respond, the lower ranking angels, the high ranking angels. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Uh, Christ answers them. Uh, they ask, they, then they ask Christ, why are your clothes red? And why are your garments like one who treads the winepress? He said, he goes on to say to them, I have treaded the winepress alone. And I've, you know, I've gone to save man. So in this case, in Isaiah, you see the angels asking, who is this that comes from Edom? And Christ himself answers. Um, he says, it is I, the one who speak in righteousness. This is Isaiah 63, uh, verses one and following. And by the way, these will be in the notes that I'll send you, okay? I just didn't want you flipping back and forth and trying to find everything in the Bible and getting buried in your notes. Do you see the vision here? There's this wonderful, magnificent, as Christ goes up, questions are asked, who is this that comes? And the angels ask, who is this? You say, but Father, don't they know? Don't they know? Don't they know? Well, you presume that angels are omniscient. You presume they know everything. Why do you presume this? You see, yes, they're very smart and all, but again, very often angels need to have things revealed to them as well. You see, so we see here again. Let's, let me just read it one more time because um, so as Christ ascends, 
some of the higher ranking angels, this is according to the fathers, ask, who is this coming from Edom, from Bozrah, with crimson, that is to say, red stained garments? Who is this robed in splendor, marching in the greatness of his strength? And the Lord himself now answered, it is I who speak in righteousness, and I am mighty to save. For then why are your clothes red, the angels asked. Your garments too, like one who treads the winepress. He says, I have treaded the winepress alone, and I have defeated my enemy and cast him down. So again, from Isaiah 63. All right. The presence of the angels at the ascension and this great dialogue are hinted at in these, um, in these texts by the fathers. But it's also very clearly stated that the angels were present at the ascension in Acts chapter 1 and verse 9. So we see here, they, namely the disciples or the apostles, watched as Christ was taken up and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently. They were looking intently into the sky. And as he, as he was going, when suddenly two angels dressed in white stood beside them, men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will also come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So we see that, therefore, there is this... Um, um, this great um, presence of the angels. And remember, Jesus also attests to what they would see in, in John 150 that I read you earlier. You will see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I'm trying to, I say I, but Danielu, uh, as, well as, um, as well as the fathers of the church, are trying to paint a picture for you about what the ascension was like. Some of it behind the veils. We don't see it here on earth, but as Christ goes up, there's this great celebration, but also this great, if you will, proclamation. The one who comes is he, he, the Lord, the mighty. Now, one of the uh, Eusebius, one of the church fathers, also cites Psalm 47, which we use in the liturgy hmm, on ascension. And it is, again, from um, uh, Psalm 47. God ascends amid shouts of joy, the Lord with sounds of trumpets. Sing praise to God, sing praise, sing praise to our King. Sing praise, for God is King over all the earth. Sing profound praises to him. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. The nobles of the nations have assembled as the people of God and Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to him, and he is highly to be exalted. So again, uh, some uh, Eusebius and some of the other church fathers have this song on the lips of the angels as Christ goes up in glory. All right, now, but this is a glorious, glorious vision of Christ going up in glory and this magnificent singing of the angels and lifting up the heads of the gates and let in the king of glory and trumpets are sounding and the angels are rejoicing uh, at God's presence, okay? So, <clears throat> again, um, let me read to you from page 40 of uh, Danielu's book. If you have it, you can open there. But I want to just read that again, as I've already mentioned to you, in a way, this is kind of the reverse of what took place at the Nativity, which I shared with you back in December. So I'm reading on page 40. <clears throat> with origin appears the text of Isaiah 63, uh, the allusion to the blood of the Passion, all right? Uh, when he came forward, uh, the victor, uh, the vic as the victor, his body raised up from the dead, certain of the angels said, or powers of the angels said, who is this that comes from Basra with his garments dyed red? Those who were escorting him said in, the, in charge of the to those in, the, in charge of the gates, lift up your heads, O you gates of eternity. This feature is repeated in Gregory of Nyssa. 
after having described the angels on earth who did not recognize Christ in his descent, this time, conversely, he shows that our guardians form an escort that ordered the powers of heaven who are above, to, uh, above the world to open up the gates so that the Lord may be adored among them once again. But they do not recognize him because he has put on the poor tunic of our human nature and because his garments were dyed crimson red in the winepress of human wrath and evils. This time it is they who cry out, who is this king of glory? Likewise, Ambrose says, if even the angels doubted when Christ arose, seeing him rising in, into heaven in the flesh, they said, you know, who is this king of glory? And while some of them were saying, lift up your, your gates, O you princes, others were doubting, saying, who is this that comes from Edom? So again, the angels, if you will, need a proclamation. They need for uh, the lower ranking angels who are every bit of, as much messengers of God as they are to speak to them this truth. Uh, of, of who this is and that God has revealed this. And so, again, they have a word being proclaimed to them about the glorious identity of the one who, who rises, okay? All right, now just a little bit more about the praises of the angels at the ascension, all right? Um, some other text, if you will. Um, again, and all these texts that I'm using are, 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 are not, you know, my thoughts. They're, they come from the fathers of the church and Danielu includes them in this book as well. So, for example, um, we see that um, in the letter to the Philippians, how St. Paul describes uh, this, this aspect of the angel's adoration of Christ. As you know, it begins, um, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not deem equality with God something to be grasped at, but rather he emptied himself and took up the form of, the, of a slave, uh, being born in the likeness of human flesh. And it was thus that he humbled himself, obediently accepting death, even death on a cross. Because of this, God the Father highly exalted him and gave him uh, a name above every other name. And here it comes now, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee must bow in the heavens on the earth and under the earth, even the demons, and every tongue proclaim to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. So Paul is saying here that not just us, but the angels in heaven are proclaiming Jesus is Lord, and even the demons in hell and on this earth have to bend their knee at the name of Jesus and confess with a, a resignation that he is in fact Lord. Um, in exorcisms, that this, this Philippians 2 is very important and um, uh, it is often used, and in, in, in demons are, if you will, forced to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not in a, a religious or adoring sense, do they, but they do acknowledge this truth. They cannot simply deny what is evident. So, but obviously we're focusing on the good angels, and they are rejoicing and crying out in the heavens, Jesus Christ is Lord, all right? For though he humbled himself and took up a human nature, he is now, in fact, the Lord who walks in to this heavenly place and takes his seat at the Father's right hand. He is both man and he is God. And in his one person unites these two natures and the angels revere him. Now, I wanna read something from John Chrysostom. And here again, I'm going to the book, uh, page 37 in this case. John Chrysostom develops the thought of St. Paul in Philippians, that text I just read to you. And he writes, today we are raised up into heaven. We who seemed unworthy even of earth, we are, were exalted in Christ uh, above the heavens. We arrive at the kingly throne. Now remember, what is John presuming here, John Christian? That we're members of the body of Christ, that he shares our humanity so that we can share in his divinity 
and that as a member of his body, when he goes into the Holy of Holies, when he ascends, we ascend there with him. So let me start that again. John develops the thought of St. Paul, and he says, today, in the ascension, we are raised up into heaven, we who seemed unworthy even of earth. We are exalted above the heavens. We arrive at the heavenly kingly throne. The nature which caused the cherubim to keep guard over paradise uh, is seated today, now, above the cherubim. Was it not enough to be elevated above the heavens? Was it not enough to have a place among the angels? Was, it, was not such glory beyond all expression for us? He rose, Jesus, in his humanity, not just his divinity, in his humanity, he rose above the angels. He passed the, cher the cherubim and went higher than the seraphim. He bypassed the thrones, those that angelic choir in heaven. He did not stop until he arrived at the very throne of God. This is really a commentary on the following text from the epistle to the Hebrews. He has taken his seat at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much superior to the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Now, again, a remarkable thing, right? Um, now, uh, let me read to you also then another text from Hebrews that some of the other fathers attribute. This is from Hebrews chapter 2. For it is not to the angels that he subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But somewhere it is testified in these words. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? But yet you have made him just for a while a little lower than the angels. But now you have crowned him with glory and honor and placed everything under his feet. So although we are beneath the angels in terms of our humanity, they are higher, more excellent creatures. But in Christ who comes to us, he elevates our nature and we rise up even higher than the cherubim, the seraphim, the thrones, and are seated on the throne at the Father's right hand in Christ Jesus our Lord. A magnificent exaltation of the human person. You know, when I first went to my very first moral theology class, my, my moral teacher, Father Zilla, may he rest in peace. He said today, he said, I'm sorry, he said, uh, we're, today we're going to begin a study of moral theology. And the great high feast of moral theology is the Feast of the Ascension. Because in the Feast of the Ascension, man returns to God. But he is transformed by his encounter with Jesus Christ. So he's, he went on to teach us that you know, moral theology is that, if you will, that, that equips us. What, what graces shall I be open to? How will God transform me? How will he take me out of my sinfulness and into a share of his divine nature? That's what we call moral theology. It is this process or this goal that the Lord died for us and rose to give us a completely new life. And having transformed us, we then return to God in Christ Jesus. And man who was once walking with God in the garden is now restored to God, but not just restored, but exalted with God at the Father's right hand in Christ Jesus. So I know that's a lot of words, but I hope you hear what I'm getting at. We have been exalted. And this is the great goal of Jesus who came to suffer and die for us, to give us not just a new life here on earth, but an exalted presence in heaven so that even the angels of God worship Christ and we are members of his body. It's an amazing truth. Now the true mystery of the ascension then is the exaltation of human nature 
above all the worlds of angels in Christ Jesus. And Danny Lu states that in the book. Hence, the angels are astonished. Man returns to God, but now exalted, not simply restored. The ascension, this is a very beautiful insight I never thought of. The ascension is the counterpart of the fall. We had a preternatural nature. We were glorious in our humanity in the Garden of Eden, but we fell. But now, in Christ, we ascend. We don't just get back up again. We ascend. And we go to a higher place. And we now share not just in the preternatural human nature, but a, a share in the glorious divine nature of God. So do, do you, well, I hope you're getting excited again. Are y'all getting excited out there? Are you looking? Yeah, all right. But now, this, of course, leads to this idea. Is this why Satan fell? You see, after I've gone through all this with you, you might see, I'm not saying you would agree, but you might see how some of the angels might say, hmm, I'm not so sure about this. You're saying that you're going to join up with these dumb little mud dolls down there who do nothing but fight and, 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 and can't, can't, can't go a day, even a day without even the just among them falling seven times. You're going to become a little mud doll. And then you're going to take this mud doll up to a higher place than we are in heaven. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh -uh. No, no, no. See. And so Satan and some of the angels with him rebelled at this notion. They recoiled that we dumb little mud dolls would somehow be raised up even above them in Christ Jesus. So you see the vision. I'm not trying to excuse it. I'm just trying to say you start to see, though, if you really examine what's happened to us, why some of these angels might have said, hmm, hmm, what about that? Now, um, by the way, of course, let's always remember that in our current unseemly state that we always still revere, we look up to the angels, and there will never be a time, even in heaven, that we look down on them, right? We will always rejoice with them, and our focus will be on God. But you see, this exaltation of the human person is utterly astonishing, and the angels are astonished by it. And they need to have it preached. Who is this? Who's coming? What's happening? And all of this is revealed to them, okay? All right, now, let me, I have a few things to say on the next part of this. It's much shorter, the angels in the church, which is a little surprising to me. But that's because he develops other things like sacraments and so on and other chapters, which we'll also deal with. So the section on the church is fairly brief. But with that in mind, should I stop maybe, Andy, for a few questions? Yes, we could actually, That I think that would make sense. It's a good time. Uh, there's a couple already queued up here. So let me just read from a list. Let's, let's go with this. Paul, Pauline writes in and says, where is the uh, biblical information on the existence of nine choirs? Or is that primarily found within uh, the church fathers? Well, as I said in my first, I, I deal with this, by the way, in talk number one. So you can get more than what I'll be able to say here today there. Let's be clear. We are somewhat aware of nine choirs. That doesn't mean there's only nine. Um, but we settled on nine because if you start to collect in Thomas, for example, all the different terms or names for angels and so on in the scriptures, you start to see the idea of nine, uh, you know, different names and how they get ranked and, and so on. Again, there are scriptures here and there. However, it is a, something of, a, of an assembled tradition in the, in the sense that it's not like there's one place in the Bible you look up and say there are nine choirs of angels and they're divided into three different groups. And it's not that clear. 
Uh, but you glean this from the things that are said about the angels and some of the things that certain angels do and other angels do. And this is what Thomas and others have done. And that's how the tradition has developed. However, everyone, including Thomas, will say there may be much more. This is what we know. And it's therefore it's not a dogma that there are nine choirs of angels. It is simply a, a, a rather reliable tradition that we've settled on to help kind of sort it all out. And I deal with more of that in the first talk. Uh, there's another one from uh, Wyatt. Uh, this is going back to uh, creation, but also touches on the fall of the angels, which you've been mentioning. Um, and Wyatt writes, were or are angels cooperating in the creation process of God? Uh, and if so, did some of creation fall when the angels fell? Okay. Um, <clears throat> I, I can only speculate on the second part. The first part, I think, would be no, because... Creation is completely, completely and wholly a work of God, and angels are part of that creation. Now, were they created uh, before um, the um, creation of the physical world? I don't know. Um, probably there were angels before. But nevertheless, I think that what's very clear in the scriptures is that there's a strong emphasis on how God spoke all creation into existence through his logos, namely through the second person. So that um, it, it, all things um, were created in, in, in speaking of Christ in the letter to the Colossians, all things were created through him, all things were created for him, and he before all else that is. Uh, and, and, and so this is wholly and completely and directly a creation as is a work of God. Uh, the angels being part of that creation, either before the physical universe or, or not, we don't know. I think the, the, the stronger tradition is that they were created before, but not that, um, uh, so I think that that's the, that's the most, the best answer. Now, the second part of that, I think I was, what was I? Uh, it, it, basically, the person was asking just like how we see uh, creation uh, falling when Adam and Eve fall. Was there oh. some type of fall within creation when the angels fell? Yeah, well, I think we, we have to accept the fact that the angels, some of the angels had already fallen, because that's what Satan's doing there, right? I mean, he's already fallen. He's in the garden. So I think that uh, creation itself, of course, you know, cursed be the ground because of you. So that somehow all of creation was affected by the sin of Adam and Eve is certainly a, a teaching. But I think that what, whenever the fall of the angels occurred, it occurred before the, the Garden of Eden. Okay, sometime before the Garden of Eden in our time. Now remember, God's outside of all these structures we call time, but um, we'll, uh, I think that's the best we can say, but we certainly know that, that the fall must have happened before the Garden of Eden, and then that's when creation was wounded, if you will, by, by original sin. Okay. Uh, yeah, Hayden, go for it. I've heard that, um, it might be slightly off topic, but I've heard that written somewhere that... Um, the Holy Family, when they were traveling and traversing, um, that they had Mary revealed that there were uh, a multitude of angels that were moving with them and protected them. And when she ascended, she um, assumed she left them in service of us to work towards the glory of the kingdom. Oh, I think that... Um... That's a nice pious tradition. I think that's all we can say about it. I, I, it may have been some of the mystics saw that, but I personally find a little bit of those things. I, I don't doubt that the angels were, were with the Holy Family any more than I doubt my guardian angel is with me. Uh, I, I don't doubt that there were probably extra angels assigned, but I, I think the idea that there were some 
that, that somehow this relieved them of the need or the hardships of the travel or any of those things. I think that what we want to um, see is that we don't want to rob them of their humanity and also that they suffered a lot for us, um, as, as was their role as well. So I think that we could have maybe put those things Hayden into the category of pious tradition, lowercase t, uh, and um, that's about what we should say. It might it might be, um, but I, I don't want to also. I mean, I've heard some excessive things like, "Well, Mary never had to clean the house because the angels did that for her." Really? I mean, that somehow robs her of her humanity, you know, to me. Or she didn't need to sit on a donkey or whatever going across the desert, even if they could afford one, because, or she didn't need to walk because they lifted them up and carried them. Again, that, that, that's the kind of stuff that I, I don't want to really, that, that takes too much of their humanity away. Yeah. Anyway, that's my opinion, of course. Okay. We've got a, a good number of questions coming in, but I think as a whole, it makes sense to reserve them for the end if we've got time after you yeah. cover the angels in the church. Right. Okay, now there's a lot less that um, is covered here because, like I say, a lot of what the angels do in the church, of course, is through the sacraments and so on. So well, that's a separate chapter. So what we want to just look at here is um, uh, how the angels were present to the human gathering that we call the church. Now, in the Old Testament, of course, we didn't refer to the church as the body of Christ, but the kahal or the, to the gathering of God's people. Where do we first encounter this gathering of God's people? Well, it's in paradise. Um, and we see that throughout the, the tradition, the sin of the angels was their refusal uh, to recognize the dignity of Adam and Eve created in the image of God. Satan in particular became envious of man and induced him to sin. Here we get into a very interesting little debate. Um, was Satan, well, if, if Satan was fallen, I have no problem with understanding that he was on the earth. But really, as a seraphim or a member of the cherubim or the thrones, even if fallen, why would he be overly preoccupied with anything going on the earth? Um, wouldn't that be maybe one of the preoccupations of one of the lower angels whose job was to focus on things on the earth? So some of the fathers, such as um, John Damascene, argue that uh, Satan was a fallen archangel. Whereas, uh, say, for example, um, uh, Chrysostom and others uh, argue that he was one of the highest angels, maybe even a seraphim who fell. Thomas says uh, he favors that view, but he doesn't um, exclude the possibility that he was from one of the lower ranking angels. Um, but um, um, I, I don't, Danny Lou speaks of it a little bit in the book, and that's the only reason I'm mentioning it to you. I don't want to dwell on it because even Thomas says, look, we don't really know, and it's not that important. Uh, I favor one position, but it's not that important. And um, the problem is Satan is here, and he's very powerful. So we first encounter uh, an interaction between angels and man. The, the original, if you will, church is what? Adam and Eve, right? Uh, where do we, unfortunately, <laughs> we don't have an encounter with angel, good angels, but only the bad angel, Satan, is there, and we encounter him. And so the first thing we see is not just the... Uh, the angels encountering the church, but unfortunately a fallen angel encountering the church. And out of envy, he hates the excellence of Adam and Eve. And particularly, maybe he already has in mind that they are going to be raised up by the Lord one day in their ancestors uh, to even above the angel. And out of envy, now remember, let's remember what envy is. Envy is not the same as jealousy. If I'm jealous of you, you have something I would like to have, maybe inordinately. If I'm envious of you, there's something excellent about you that I want to destroy. 
because I take it to lessen my own excellence or standing. Envy is the diabolical sin because it doesn't seek to possess the good, but to destroy the good, to destroy what's excellent. So seeing the excellence of Adam and Eve, seeing that one day they would be exalted, he's envious and he seeks to destroy that glory in them. This is where, unfortunately, the angels first encounter the, the church in, in, in negatively, negatively in this sense, right? We do see, though, that opposed to this envy of the wicked angels towards Adam and Eve were the good angels. And we talked about them just now in the first part of this course tonight, how they rejoiced and exulted that as Christ entered into the heavens. And they were astonished and they were admiring of how God had taken something lower, namely us, and so elevated it. And so the good angels we see, but we don't. The first interaction with the church is uh, they, we don't see them there, but we do see them, unfortunately, in the bad angels. Now, that's, that is to say that we know uh, throughout the Old Testament that God does assign angels. Now, for reasons of his own, Don Elu doesn't go through a lot of those things. Some of them he'll bring up with the guardian angels. But, for example, uh, God sent his angels uh, to accompany the people in the desert. God said to them, and he says to us regarding these angels that he sent, you will listen to the angels that I send you. You will obey his voice, for he speaks with my authority. You will listen to him, and you will obey him. So already we see in the desert a mention of um, uh, the, the presence of the angels in the church gathered. Now, when I say church here, I'm speaking of ancient Israel as a type of the church and pointing to the church. It was the kahal, the group, the gathered ones, uh, the chosen people. So we see already that the angels are there. We see that there are times where angels interact with some of the, some of the biblical figures and so on, such as Jacob and others. And uh, we see all of these things. So we know that they were interacting. But as we move forward into the, um, into the New Testament era, we see that we move from simply speaking of the people of God or a chosen people, we now start speaking of both the body of Christ and the bride of Christ. And in this level, we see that um, the church is the body of Christ. He gathers that straying and lost humanity joining them to his body. He unites us to himself, and the good angels rejoice at this, and they seek to facilitate it. Now, the fathers of the church especially see the angels in terms of the friend of the bridegroom who have helped arrange a wedding by instructing the bride. How did the angels, if you will, prepare the bride? All through the Old Testament, leading, guiding, shepherding, helping, inspiring the prophets, bringing people to repentance, leading them through the desert, all these things that the bridegroom had done to prepare for the great wedding of the lamb. Now you say, you know, in our culture, it's mostly the bridesmaids or the best, the best, the, the, the mother of the groom, I mean, sorry, the mother of the bride or the, um, the best, I'm sorry, the, um, the, the, the maid or matron of honor. They're, they're kind of in charge of the wedding in our Western modern culture, but in ancient culture, no, this was all taken care of by the best man. He was the friend of the groom, and he made these arrangements. And so the fathers of the church say that the angels had prepared the, the bride, had prepared the wedding feast, and had prepared the bride. Uh, wow, again, all those ways I said in the Old Testament, all of those ways and more besides, hidden things that we'll never know what they were doing, and they were preparing. So we see, therefore, the fathers then rejoice in this. Gregory of Nyssa connects the angels to those who awaited their master's return from a wedding. So let me read to you from page 53, and I know we're getting close to the end here. we got about seven more minutes. I'm going to say page 53. If you have your book, you can open it. 
Now, first of all, uh, Dan Elu makes this remark. He says that the angels are the friends of the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, namely the best man, and they are united to the nuptial mystery of the ascension. Gregory of Nyssa, connecting the parable of the servants who awaited the return of their master from a wedding or to for a wedding, and, and the theme of the friends of the bridegroom shows that the angels were waiting for the Lord to lead the church, his bride, into the house of his father. It is the angels to whom the gospel precept compares us, be like men who await their master's return from a marriage feast. So the angels in heaven then were waiting for Christ to return from the wedding feast, keeping close to the gates of heaven, constantly watching for Jesus to return so that they would be ready to open the gates as he came from the great wedding feast to enter into a glorious blessedness. Here the image is not so much Christ's body ascending, but the bride ascending. You see here this image. Well, some people say to me, Father, what is the church? Is it the body of Christ or the bride of Christ? Huh? Come on, it can't be both. <laughs> Have you not read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two of them shall become one? So is the church the bride of Christ or the body of Christ? Somebody just say, yes. It's both. Or she, he, the, the, the church is the bride of Christ and the body of Christ. The groom and the bride are one. Now, so therefore, as Christ ascends, you have this image of, you know, the, the communications going up. All the angels in heaven had known as that Christ had gone down. He had descended to the earth. And they were like, he'd gone down to find his, the lost sheep. He'd gone down to find the lost coin. But he'd also gone down to find his bride who had wandered off. <laughs> and having found her, he now returned with her. And it, so the, the fathers of the church see this beautiful image and both the, um, the friend of the bridegroom, you know, remember how, how John the Baptist put it. The, the friend of the bridegroom is the best man, and he rejoices when the bride comes because now he knows his work is done. And so the angels rejoice in that role, but they also rejoice, be like those who await their master's return from a wedding, ready to open immediately when he knocks. And he says, this is how it was for the angels in heaven. They were waiting, and they heard the angels cry up, lift up the gates. And as Christ enters, he does not enter alone. He enters with his human nature, but he also enters with his bride. And mystically, brothers and sisters, you and I ascended with him that day because he's always known us and always included us in his body. And beyond that, as I said to you back when we studied this in the catechism course, the Bible says in the, in the book of, um, <clears throat> in both Ephesians and also in 1 Peter, says, what does it mean that Christ ascended, but that he first descended? and even to the lowest realms of the earth. And when he ascended, he took with him a host of captives in a triumphant train. So Christ goes up, not alone. He goes up with Adam and Eve. He goes up with Moses. He goes, well, maybe Moses has been caught. He goes up with David. He goes up with Deborah. He goes up with all those men and women who have been waiting for the Messiah. He goes in with his whole body, his whole bride. He ascends not alone, but he ascends with all the members of his body and bride, the church. So you see the beautiful vision here. This is a magnificent, you know, as, as the book of uh, both First Peter, but especially um, um, Ephesians says, he led with him a host of captives. Now this word captives, it has to be rescued because what Paul has in mind is that when, when a military general came back 
from battle. He would he had a, a triumphal procession into the town, usually under an arch that had been constructed, and he would lead with him. He'd have all the booty, so to speak, all the gold or whatever he was able, and also a whole train, if you will, of of captives behind him. But the image here isn't that the, the members of the body of Christ or the bride of Christ are captives, but that they're in a triumphal procession, a train going up now into the holy place of heaven. So you see the view, vision here? Christ does not ascend alone. He brings with him his body. He brings with him his bride. He brings with us all of us and all those who had gone before and were waiting. So it's a magnificent triumphal procession. And let me just say a couple more things and I'll take some questions and we'll be done. We have the great wedding feast of the Lamb that's spoken of in the, in the, um, in the book of Revelation, right? I saw the new Jerusalem, beautiful as a bride, prepared to meet her husband. So how does the Bible begin? It begins with the wedding. How does the Bible end? It begins with the wedding. I mean, it ends with the wedding. The, the, the wedding feast of the Lamb. It began with Adam and Eve's wedding. And you notice the very first, the beginning of the public ministry of Christ begins at a wedding. So this beautiful vision of the bride and the bridegroom coming together, facilitated by the angels who are the friend of the groom and those who rejoice and those who send their master forth for a wedding. And now they're looking and waiting for him to return from that wedding, bringing his bride. All of these are the beautiful things. So you see the imagination of the fathers in these things and how magnificent and how glorious, you know, these, these, these meditations are on both the ascension and on the church as the great bride of the lamb and all that the angels did and their role. Okay. Well, I think that's kind of what we'll stop with. Well, well next time I think was it the church and the, I mean, the angels and the sacraments, is it Andy? Right. Mm -hmm. That's true. Quick questions or wrap ups. It's about five after. There's a, there are a couple questions coming in. And they have to do with uh, the fallen angels. Mariana and Janice, I'm going to combine your questions together. It's kind of a two-part. Okay, so one is, if the angels know that God will be successful, if they know they will fail, at least according to Scripture, why do they continue to rebel? With this, there's also a question of, does Jesus hold a merciful love for the fallen angels as he does for us? Well, let, let's take the first question, and then um, you might need to remind me of how that second one works out. I, I will simply say, and again, I, I say this with humility, you know, I've, I've had to participate in a number of exorcisms uh, as part of my diocesan duties. And I remember one time, one of the things we say in the right is that we constantly remind Satan all through the right that he's lost. Oh, Jesus overcame you in the garden. He, he, he withstood you in the desert. He, 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 he died, and, and yet he destroyed the death, and he rose, and we just keep reminding him what a, what a loser he is. He's, he's already lost, but every, once I just happened, just out of curiosity, and I shouldn't really, you know, you're not even really supposed to ask demons these questions, but I said to him, you know, you know you have failed, and you know that the longer you delay your departure, the worse your punishment shall be. That's from the right. And I said, why do you stay? And he just looked, and he said, because I hate you. You know, a lot of times we human beings, we do things that we know will hurt us and we do them in abundance. We drink too much or, you know, we eat too much. Or, why do we do that? We know better, but we don't. And again, part of it is because we love apparent goods more than actual or, you know, eternal goods. You see the idea, there's something, we all know we've got to screw loose. I'm going to just tell you, sin makes you stupid and demons are very sinful and they're the really stupidest of all. And so we always think they're so wise and so smart. There's a kind of an intelligence, but there's no wisdom. But the only point in saying all these things is, if you want to know why demons still do what they do, even though 
they, they know they know they've lost and they're on the losing team. They do it because they hate you. Now, why does God do what he does? Because he loves you. There's almost no explanation. I'm hard to love. I'm going to say it to all of you. I don't mean, I don't mean it personally, but we are hard to love. And yet God loves us. He loves us because that's what love does. It loves. So now, as far as you, you said something about, does God still love? How did it go? Yes. Um, does, does Jesus hold a merciful love for the fallen angels as he does for us? Yes. I mean, God loves the saints. I mean, the, 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 the damned in hell, he loves, the, he loves the demons. He still holds them in existence. He doesn't destroy or annihilate them. You know, at times he has to deal with them forcibly because this is what they need. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's an astonishing thing to think about, isn't it? But God cannot hate. There's no hate in God. God is love. See, love is not something God does or a part of God. God is love. And love cannot, by definition, hate. So yes, he still does. And I think... I, I, I've often wondered at the wailing and grinding of teeth as somebody departs into hell. I mean, I say this poetically, of course, not theologically, but I wonder if it isn't God who's wailing and grinding his teeth that somebody said no, somebody that he loves, you know. I just, it's, it, it must be an awful, awful thing. Now, of course, you know, I say these things in human terms. God doesn't have human passions or grief and things like we do, but it just must be just so awful to think that people don't want what you're offering and again, we can only experience that at a human level, and God doesn't have passions like we do. But again, so I say that creatively. I, I think the waiting and the grinding of teeth, if you really look at the text, is are those who depart. Uh, but I, 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 can't, I can't imagine that God is like, okay, I don't care one way or the other. I, I don't have feelings. Um, Jared's writing in, and then Jane, you can be next after that. Jared's wondering if you could comment on 1 Corinthians 11.10 which is, that is why a woman ought to have a veil on her head because of the angels. Yeah. All right. Well, of course, that's much debated among scripture scholars and others. Who are the angels? I think one of the explanations is, in this case, the angels isn't angels, angels, but it's the clergy. In other words, well, <laughs> I'll just say this. I'll just, I'll just speak plainly that, you know, sometimes some of you ladies, um, you're awful pretty. It helps if you dress modestly. Um, there may it may be that straightforward and plain. I don't know why would why would an you know a, an angel need you know an angel as an angel need a woman to wear a veil. Uh, now there are some traditions, and we'll talk about. It. In fact, Father said he won't deal with the question of the Nephilim and all that later. That there were there were there are two traditions among the fathers about the Nephilim that the angels they actually did have sexual relations um, with with human women. And this created the race called the Nephilim. That's one theory. It's the less common theory. Um, but, of course, our, our modern understanding of angels would preclude that because they don't really even have bodies. Uh, I, I would be of the mind that that's not, not what the Nephilim are. But part of it would tie into that theory. So it's possible that in order to keep the angels, whose job it is to worship God, from being too distracted by the beauty of human women, um, that they might, uh, there might be some of that. But I just take it more practically in the first sense that I meant it. And I think that's a, at least a more applicable thing because I think what it does is it puts angels who have no bodies, therefore no sexual passions and no attractions in that matter in need of something that angels don't really need. If you hold that it, it's, we don't want to distract them uh, by the beauty of human women. Okay. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Jane, feel free to unmute yourself. When you, father, when you, Monsignor, when you were talking about um, God, not, not, um, you know, hating and, and, and not suffering, but Christ on the cross, could he have suffered the loss of, you know, the, the fallen angels 
I mean, I know I suffer for a relative who has no, no desire and totally rejects God, no desire for God. And I suffer tremendously for that. So I'm wondering if that's one of the things that Christ suffered on the cross. Well, certainly in, in terms of his human passion, yes. I yeah. think he certainly could have. And didn't he, um, you know, he wept for Jerusalem that would be destroyed. He, he yeah. was uh, very, very passionate in that sense. Remember, um, one of the reasons that he took a human nature was so that he could suffer in the sense yeah. that we do. Although as a, as, a, as a perfect human being, not an imperfect one. So I think that uh, we see that um, his suffering, I think it was, it was a Cassian who said, we are saved by the human decision of a, uh, the, human, the human decision of a divine person because he needs to take up humanity so he can suffer, but also so he can have a will. There's only one divine will that he has. He can't disagree with his father as God. There's only one divine will. But if he has a human will, now he can obey his father. So these are the reasons that he took up a human nature. And certainly, in order to be able to suffer, his sufferings were not simply physical. Uh, he did weep. He was he cared. He, he, he regretted the loss of, of people. And I'm sure the fallen angels among them at the human level. And by the way, if love intensifies suffering, as I think it does, yeah. nobody ever suffered loss like that. Okay, well, uh, thank you so much for your time, Monsignor. We really appreciate it. If it be possible to end with a blessing from you. And yeah, accept benedictio Dei omnipotentis, Patris, Fili, et Spiritus Sancti, Descendus Supervos, et Mania Semper. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.